This is unstructured. Today, I'm really happy to have with us Dr. Andy Young. Dr. Andy Young teaches at Lubbock University, and I believe you teach counseling, correct? That's right, and some psychology classes, too. Fantastic. How are you doing today, Dr. Young? Very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. Now, I wanted to bring you on because you have a sideline, I guess you'd call it, with hostage negotiation. That's right. I love my sideline jobs, and that's my favorite, of course. It has to be a little bit traumatic, though, doesn't it? It does. Uh, having been doing it for 20 years or so, um, I think that's helped me get acclimated to it. But that said, then, you know, you get other calls doing things you've never done before, and you kind of have to work through um, coping with that. Um, so there is a cycle to it as well. Is it like a an adrenaline type of situation? Yes, though I try to stay as, as calm as possible in a new situation just because, you know, the calm is helpful all, in, all on its own for me and the people we're talking to. Yeah, I've had a few other negotiators on. I think you may be familiar with some of them. Um, Chris Voss, Derek Gaunt, um, J. Paul Nadeau. Mm -hmm. Chris mm -hmm. Voss likes to talk about using his late night FM DJ voice. Mm. Yes, the uh, uh, being a sedative <laughs> seems to have its place. One thing that I think is interesting, I'd love to explore, is the fact that I feel that a counseling session and a crisis and a crisis situation mm. are two completely different things. Yeah, that is fair to say. When someone comes to me for counseling in my office, it's usually a very different situation than someone who is in crisis and thinking of hurting themselves or hurting someone else. And yeah, the approach would be a little bit different. Can we go into that a little bit? Because I think that might be helpful for a lot of people, people who may be going to counseling right now. Right. And with crisis, you have to use tactical empathy, if I'm using that in the correct way, because you have to get to a place. That's right. It's not an exploration. You have to get to the destination. That's right. Uh, and empathy is kind of the foundation for both schools of thought. When somebody comes to me for, uh, I guess, what we would call everyday counseling, empathy and understanding is the starting place. And it's the same thing with somebody who's in a crisis. But whereas in my office, we have time, I can be non-directive, I can let the person uh, speak as they uh, need to. In a crisis, we may not have that latitude at all. Okay, so what is your baseline approach? Let's say you get a call and you have a crisis. What's next? Yeah, well, my uh, first crisis is what comes to mind uh, with working with the negotiators. Uh, right after they asked me if I'd like to join the team, and before I'd been to any training or done anything, uh, they called me out to talk to somebody who wanted to jump off a bridge. And my opening with that person is the uh, opening, you know, just as with anybody who uh, is looking for help or counseling, which is, can you tell me what's going on today? But in that case, the situation was totally different outside in the cold, traffic uh, running by, people on the sidelines yelling at us. And this man having a horrible time and on the edge of trying to kill himself. And so uh, though the approach of calm and empathy uh, is the same starting place and the opening is the same, everything from there, it seems to be quite different. How do you cross that bridge? Because I'm not sure that they want to see you in that situation. 
Yes, uh, I think each person is different in that situation. In this uh, instance, my first instance, uh, this gentleman was in pain, uh, had had a lot of stressors occur in his life, and was willing and open to talk about it and seemed to want some help trying to sort it through. Whereas in other cases, uh, uh, we had a seven-hour call with another person wanting to jump off a bridge. And he had three angry lines, wouldn't give us his name. And that was about all we did for the first three or four hours. That's really interesting. So these are kind of like an A-B scenario. Yeah. I think you've spoken about the second case before. Was he on drugs or was there something else going on? Was he psychotic? Yeah, that gentleman had a history of uh, psychotic disorder, a personality disorder. And that night he had taken some sort of drug. I'm not quite sure what it was, but meth is a leading guess. Now, in that case, as part of the game, and I almost hate saying game because it makes it sound trivial. Sure. But the approach. Yeah, approach. Yeah, perfect. Is part of the approach to wait it out a little bit, let some time go by, get some drugs out of the system, that type of thing. Right. That was our leading theory was, you know, after being in the cold for so long and the drugs wearing off, maybe we'll be dealing with a different type of person. That was our opening theory. Yes. And how did that go for you? Uh, It didn't go as well as we had hoped. Uh, As the drugs wore off, uh, the schizophrenia and the personality disorder presented themselves more strongly. And so in some ways, we kind of got to start over. <laughs> it was one of the more difficult calls for sure. That also leads into another question. You said he was schizophrenic? Uh, he had a, some sort of psychotic disorder on top of the uh, meth he was using. So how do you communicate when you're almost speaking to them in another language after a fashion? Yeah, that's right. Well, schizophrenia is on a continuum, and uh, I have found most people with a psychotic disorder at some level for some period of time can engage you and engage the reality that we're inhabiting. Uh, And in those short bursts, uh, a friend of mine uh, likes to call it the island of sanity. You can have that conversation. And so it's this back and forth of, oh, we're talking. Ah, we lost him to the meth. Oh, we're talking. Oh, we lost him to the uh, psychotic disorder but hoping to make progress while we are on the island of sanity. Wow. Now, if I recall, you said it was 25 degrees outside or some other insane temperature. Yeah, it was about 25 degrees. It was midnight. It was blowing 20. He had no clothes on. And we were thinking the elements would kind of wear him down as well. But that theory uh, didn't hold true either. That's scary. I wouldn't want to be out there even if I was in a park and wearing Gore-Tex at the time. Exactly. I had my favorite boots on and my feet still got cold after about three hours. And uh, this man's feet, they at the end of it, they were in horrible shape. Oh, wow. Did did he suffer from frostbite? Uh, It looked like it from the color of his feet. um, But the psychotic disorder inhibited his ability to understand his injuries. And he actually ran to the ambulance there at the end. Wow. So what ultimately it sounds Almost as if you skipped along the islands of sanity successfully? Uh, (laughs) I would like to say so. Um, I think there were a couple of things that helped uh, bring him down, best I can tell. And again, we're trying to understand what's going on in the mind of a person who's not in touch with reality. But uh, we had a big old quilt up there holding it up for him, trying to just, you know, tempt him with the warmth. 
Uh, we laid out a blanket on the uh, freeway and got some hot chocolate and his favorite burger and put it down and kind of drew him to us. Uh, but then there was also this piece where we needed to uh, help him save face while also letting him know uh, time is short and uh, we're going to try and find another way to make you come down. And all those forces and timings seemed to come together at the right moment, and he chose to uh, run to the ambulance. Now, the right moment, I think, was a seven-hour moment, you said? Yeah, and a a piece of that right moment was uh, we pulled a Tahoe up, we tied an officer to it in a harness, And he could kind of see that, oh, uh, this man in a harness may have an advantage over me. Uh, And his uh, lethality, we determined over time, was a little bit lower than we thought. Uh, Put all that together. Yeah. Well, I guess you could tell he was unarmed, right? (laughs) Yes. Very helpful and helped all the police be calm, too. (laughs) It almost sounds like it was borderline comedic in some ways. Once we figured out what we had... Yes, it became a very different thing. But for the first three hours, uh, an essentially unresponsive subject with his arms, uh, legs over the guardrail in the cold, we really had no idea other than him yelling and cursing at us to go away. And if you get any closer, you're going to make me jump. Now, to compare and contrast with the other example on a bridge. Yeah. Actually, do you guys have a lot of bridge examples? <laughs> For for me, for whatever reason, the uh, roulette wheel seems to give me a lot of uh, suicidal subjects and a lot of people who want to jump from a high uh, position. Now, the other one we were talking about, what went down with him and how did that work out? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, his intent was much higher and we had no way to get a hold of him. And uh, eventually he uh, tipped himself backwards enough to start to fall. And then he changed his mind, but he couldn't uh, regain his balance or grab the bridge oh, and wow. fell, but he just broke his hip. He didn't He didn't die from the fall. Oh, that's good. Yeah. This is a side thing, and I'd be eager to get your thoughts on it, too. I read somewhere that they interviewed a bunch of people who had jumped off of um, Brooklyn Bridge or something like that. The Golden Gate Bridge. Right. And I understand that... It was almost like an impulsive move, and on the way down, they suddenly were saying, what did I do? Exactly. There's a, uh, a kind of a dark humor saying in my line of work, which is, cancer cures neurosis. <laughs> <laughs> so when something serious like falling off a bridge enters your consciousness, it kind of resets things. Yeah, I guess so. And that really makes sense because I read somewhere that people who are diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer or the like are some of the most present people that you will come across. Yes, that's right. They are literally living in this moment. Yes. Because the past is irrelevant and, well, they have no future. Right. As a counselor, are there ways to help someone get into the moment in their mind? Does that make sense? It does. There is actually a whole school of thought within psychology and counseling uh, called Gestalt theory. And it is all about living in the moment and how people use various mechanisms to get out of the moment, like living in the past and focusing on the future and things of that nature. So I could nerd out and go into a whole chapter of the theories of counseling book. But well, a little bit of it would be fun to explore. Does does CBT go into that a little bit? Sort of a 
act as if. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap between the theories and how you think about an event, uh, how you interpret that event, that's CBT, and that has a large part in what we do as well. Now, in negotiation, now, my mind is skipping around, but I'll bring it back. Yeah, you're fine. Do you find yourself trying to help them reframe the situation? Exactly. Yep. Are there alternative ways to interpret and understand this person's events? Now, with Derek Gaunt, we were speaking about a particular situation, and a lot of it was, how did we get here today? Right. Is that a tactic that you use or a common process? Yeah, and that's a great place to start. Uh, what has led you today to today? Why today? What is going on? What are all the factors that have led you to this decision and this moment? Yeah, that was something else he said was that usually in that moment, especially a hostage situation, it's something that went wrong, mm -hmm. that they weren't planning this. Right. That's right. People who go in to rob a bank or a store or whatever, they're not planning to take hostages. Right. Something went really wrong, and now they're backed into a corner, and they don't know what to do. Yeah, and that's the majority of the hostage situations I've dealt with was this was not a planned event. This is something that's gone wrong, and now we're improvising. Now, I have one exception to that. Uh, it was a domestic hostage taking, and, and this gentleman was uh, hell-bent on getting what he wanted, and he didn't care about the uh, police response to it. Can you describe what went down? Uh, uh, a gentleman, well, you, you know, most people have heard the stories. A woman tries to break up with a guy cause he's horrible and he doesn't take no for an answer. And he's kind of got that antisocial psychopath mentality. If I can't have you, nobody can have you. So he stalked her and eventually found her apartment and eventually broke in one night and uh, was holding her hostage, uh, because he wanted her and his time with her. And when the cops showed up, it didn't matter. He was in a room barricaded up and he was going to have his time with her. So what ultimately happened? That was a 15 hour standoff. And this was my first hostage, uh, hostage negotiation uh, while well, I was assisting. I wasn't actually talking to him. And after uh, 15 hours, he told us, well, I'm going to come out. Um, but really, that was a ruse. And all of a sudden uh, there was fire and uh, it, it was a horrible situation. Murder, suicide. It was murder-suicide, and he tried to take a bunch of police officers with him in the midst of it. Uh, blaze of glory kind of thing. That was something that I wanted to ask as well. Um, I tried to ask it of different negotiators. How do you deal with somebody who essentially wants to commit suicide by cop? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of training, interventions, research on the suicide by cop thing. And really, it kind of goes to what we're talking about. Everybody arrives in that situation from a different place. If we're talking about a psychopath, I don't know how we stop that train uh, other than trying to uh, be really good at the manipulation and influence game of the psychopath. But most people aren't that. That's just 1% of our society. Uh, how would you do that? I'm curious. Um, feed into their narcissism? Exactly. Trying to give them uh, ways to save face. Um, like if this guy has a message, you know, be very frank. You can't get your message out if you're dead. And trying to, you know, again, reinterpret the situation, but from a frame of reference that most of us don't have, kind of like with a psychotic. So with a psychopath, you just really try to stroke and feed that ego and say, boy, 
It would be really damn clever. There you go. If you had the opportunity to show everyone in court how smart you are. Exactly. And how stupid the cops are. Yeah, and and the example that you just gave comes right out of the textbooks. You know, you probably will be able to beat this in court. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so nice hit. Yeah, I was trying to think of how you could maybe get them to grandstand because you sort of have to have a degree of truth to things, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lie is perfectly acceptable if it helps accomplish something, but I'm guessing that these people can smell a lie a mile away. So you really need to hover very close to the truth. Yeah, our our baseline is don't lie, don't ever lie. Uh, the person you're talking to, if he's a liar, he's probably way better at it than you. Um, and most normal people really stink at lying anyway. So we try to avoid all that. But we will try to find what motivates and is meaningful to a person and focus on that. Of course, there are lies by omission. Yes. So, uh, yeah, there was one situation where the gentleman I was talking to, I was the primary negotiator on this one. um, He didn't want to go to jail. And I said, well, we're going to take you to the hospital. Now, the (laughs) part that I didn't talk about was, and you may go to jail after the hospital, but that was the focus at the time. (laughs) Yeah, you will be cuffed to a bed and then taken from there. Yeah. Now, there was another instance with a a veteran who was suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder and actually pointed a rifle at some police officers. But he had a well-documented history of PTSD. It didn't seem like this was some sort of, you know, play or manipulation. And we all, we, you know, the chiefs and me and everybody involved were trying to make a decision about what's the best place for this man? Is it jail? Because he did an ag assault on a police officer and pointed a weapon at him? Or is it the hospital? And we ultimately determined, let's take him to the hospital. So in that case, he wasn't going to jail. He needed help, help. But he also wasn't going free. Yes. He he needed some very intense therapy, a crisis mode, I'm guessing. That's right. And so uh, it's called an emergency detention where an officer can uh, compel a person to treatment for a time. And so we we went that way instead. And truthfully, he may spend more time in there than he would have even spent in jail. That would be up to a judge uh, and the doctors and the mental health courts. Yeah, right. Now, I'm not exactly familiar with Texas and where exactly Lubbock is. I am in the northwest part of the state out in the desert. Okay, so you're not necessarily near any of the military installations like Fort Hood, etc. No, there is an Air Force base across the state line in New Mexico, but that's a couple hours away. We have a reserve center here. Uh, We have a pretty healthy veteran population, even though we don't have a base nearby. That was going to be one of my questions. Yes. Whether you've seen a, a lot of activity from veterans. And I'm not talking about threatening or harming other people. Yeah. Mostly self-harm, suicide threats, things of that sort. I can, I can think of a few instances where we've had some sort of interaction with the veteran and, uh, and we don't need a base nearby to have that. You have a really interesting work situation. I'm guessing that you are a contractor to the police? Yeah. Uh, On paper, I'm contract laborer or a consultant. Now, do they have dedicated people internally? 
There are 20 members of our hostage negotiating team. 19 of them are police officers, and one of them is me. Oh, okay. I'm guessing that you built the team? No, no. The team was in place before I came along, uh, but they did try the novel thing. And, hey, let's invite this civilian site guy to start running our calls with us. What did that do, or how did that affect things? Uh, well, I mean, I have a different perspective just because of my background and um, uh, being a civilian. And I had to learn the law enforcement side and the tactical side as I went along. And the officers on the team, uh, you know, they had a little understanding of the, the psychology part and the disorder part. But, you know, they didn't live it every day and they didn't do internships and psych wards like I did. And so they're like, oh, OK, this is a this this helps us get there faster. So you are more able than to tell them why? Yes. And uh, being a counselor, how to talk to somebody, because police officers are trained to take control of a situation. And in some of these situations, that's the worst approach you can take. Hmm, I guess so. It's already out of control. Exactly. And so if that hammer's not going to work, what other tools do we have? So what is your primary focus when you arrive at a situation? Uh, my first, my uh, primary duty is to assist the person who is having direct com communication with our subject and try and give them pointers about how to talk to them, what to talk to them about. And from there, usually I'll get some command staff asking me, so what's your risk assessment here, Andy? Where do you see this going? And do you have any uh, thoughts about the proper tactical response? Okay, now in a typical situation when interviewing Chris Voss, the FBI, he said he liked to have about seven people. Yeah. Literally one person would do nothing but listen to everything they say. Yeah. Another person would have the job of only looking at whatever they're looking at. Right. Is that something similar that you guys do? That's right. We have a 20-person team, and we can keep 20 people busy pretty quickly, pretty easily, because we have the primary negotiator doing the talking, somebody coaching that person. I'm kind of watching all of those dynamics. We're running between the people doing the talking and the command staff. We're also trying to gather intelligence. We probably have family and friends and other people involved, so we probably want to get a negotiator with them. All that to say, pretty quickly, we've got 20 people deployed in about 10 minutes. Now, what kind of intelligence are you gathering at the time? Uh, who are we talking to? What is their background? What brought us to today? If they have a criminal history, for me, that's important because history is usually a good indicator of what's going to happen next. If they're a murderer... <laughs> Yeah, those kind of factors are very helpful. But then kind of the small stuff, especially not but small stuff, but compared to murder, it's small. What's going on in this person's life? Uh, who's important to them? If it's a suicidal situation, what is uh, important to them? What, what might give them reasons for living? If it's a psychopath, you know, what are the things that are valuable to him that might persuade him to uh, take another course of action? Anyway, that, that's kind of where we start. Now, this may be coming out of um, the left field, but we have a problem with mass shootings. Mm. I live in Virginia Beach, and recently yeah. there was a mass shooting. Right. What do you recommend that we watch out for to realize that there's something very wrong and we need to get out of the situation? That is such a difficult question because from the initial point, uh, reports out of Virginia, Kind of like what we saw in Las Vegas, we have 
uh, a man who keeps to himself, who's relatively quiet, who doesn't create a lot of ripples, but then one day something internally switches and he lashes out in violence. And so how do you predict something like that? I mean, the best you can say is uh, the, the quiet guys are the ones you want to pay attention to, but that, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of quiet guys. That's not a way to predict lethality. I didn't know if there might actually be any kind of tells like when you've gone into situations. Mm. As an example, Chris Voss has talked about, I think, um, specificity is a very dangerous thing. Yeah, that's true. Like my uh, psychopath, he was very specific about the person he wanted to take hostage. And what they're going to do. Like, somebody's going to get hurt here is not as, as intense as, if you don't deliver this in time, I will shoot her in the left knee. Exactly. Yeah. That specificity, that calculation is, yeah, that, that raises lethality on its own. But when it comes to general prediction or intervention, it has everything to do with that individual and what they are saying and what you know about them at that time. And that's what makes some of this very difficult to predict. And how do you cope with that? Because that has to be a stressor on mm. you and the people around you as well. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know if I watch too many movies. <laughs> I would think you would have one person who is rearing at the bit to go inside thinking there's hostages. Yeah. Something can really go wrong. Right. Versus someone else who may want to wait a minute. How do you balance that? So we have the negotiating team talking to the guy. We have the tactical team who's on scene and we have the commanders. We have the leaders of those three groups standing in a circle with their own schools of thought, trying to, uh, reason it out together and cover all the angles. And when a team is experienced and done that enough together and trust everybody together, it's very effective and can run very smooth. Good to hear. And you just said something and made something else pop in my head. Has it ever not been a guy? <laughs> yes, there are uh, some very bad females out there. Have you ever dealt with any situations yourself? Uh, not... Not that comes to mind, and that's why you keep hearing guys out of me. But no, I, I can think of other other agencies, friends of mine who have taken calls, and oh wow, ooh, that that lady is uh, <laughs> ice cold. I was wondering if you had, because just as we are all wired a little bit differently, I didn't know if perhaps a female might act differently in situations than a male. Yes, I think in some regards, yes, but then in other cases, no. And I keep going back to the psychopath just because that's the cleanest example. Uh, there, there are a couple of female uh, psychopaths where they're going to be entirely predictable just because of that underlying personality. Yes, and that leads to another question. Psychopaths, sociopaths. How do you differentiate between the two? Do you have any opinions? Uh, I really, I think... And this is just one man's understanding of psychopath versus sociopath. Sociology looks at the sociological environment that causes an individual to behave a certain way. Psychology looks at the individual point. But in my line of work, really, there's no difference between a psychopath and a sociopath other than maybe how they got there. Now, a psychopath doesn't necessarily mean that you can't deal with them or they're criminals, correct? That's correct. And... uh 
Um, I, let me differentiate between antisocial personality disorder and a psychopath. Oh, that'd be great because from what I understand, the DSM doesn't actually acknowledge psychopathy or sociopathy. That's the hair test. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the hair psycho- uh, psychopathy test. I- I've heard one person say when you mix uh, uh, antisocial personality disorder and a narcissist, then you got a lot of the elements of a psychopath. But the other element of the psychopath is this is a criminal. This is somebody who wants to do bad things just because they want to, need to, or in some cases, they're just bored. I've also been reading lately that autism and psychopathy are actually not that far apart. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, it depends on how you look at them. Uh, but autism often lacks that empathy uh, relational part. And so I can see why people might connect those dots. Yes, from what I understand, the big difference between the two is that the autistic will not acknowledge the other one's feelings or understand it, versus a psychopath will enjoy it. Yeah, the psychopath is going to use relationship to get what they want, whereas someone with autism, that, that's not going to be them at all. They just don't even think about it. No, uh-uh, that, that's just it doesn't register with them. With a psychopath, empathy doesn't register with them other than possibly on a cognitive level if they try real hard. And, of course, not every psychopath is a stone-cold killer, like in the movies. Exactly. I I saw an interview somewhere, and a CEO was telling the reporter about how he had done some research on antisocial personality disorder, or maybe it was narcissism, and he realized that he was one of them. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, person doing the interviewing was like, oh, so does that mean you're going to change your ways and be a better person, all that kind of stuff? And you could see the guy kind of go, yes, because he was giving the answer he knew he should give. <laughs> <laughs> it's And it's weird, too. I don't mean to take it too far off the rails, but it's been speculated that sometimes great world leaders may have a touch of it mm-hmm. because empathy can be a horrible thing. If you have to make a major social change. Yes, exactly. And I think it was Dr. Fallon who said that with Nelson Mandela, everyone loved him, but his children. Yeah, well, there you go. That would be a good example. And a psychopath has the ability to solve a problem without worrying about one person here or there, some of the fallout. Yeah, I I like to pick on surgeons. Oh, yeah. You know, and pilots. You don't, yeah, you don't want an empathetic surgeon. Uh, when you need a chest tube put in. True. You want a mechanic. Exactly. <laughs> as cold as it sounds. Exactly. And probably a narcissist, too, I hate to say, because you want their reputation on the line and they have to be viewed as brilliant or important. That's right. Highly capable and not tied down by that silly empathy and you know social rules thing. <laughs> and now, skipping from psychopaths to jump down another path... Um, I've had on previously Dr. Robert King out of Ireland. He's an evolutionary psychologist who has studied hybristophiles. Are you familiar with them? Mm, don't know it. Women who are attracted to mass murderers. Oh, outstanding. And he actually did a research paper on the two different types of mass killers. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if you might have any thoughts on this. Essentially, there are two types There's a younger mass killer who has an evolutionary advantage, oddly enough. Mm. Then you have the older mass killer, and they are usually on their way out. And you'll find that the younger ones sometimes survive and let themselves get taken in. 
and their actions, ironically, actually attract women. Right. Because they're increasing their social status, twisted as it is. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other end of the spectrum are the middle-aged men, usually, who are on the downslope. They're not going to have any mm. more social status, and they're likely to take themselves mm. along with everyone else out. Yeah, go out with a blaze of glory kind of thing. So I know that all sounded weird, but I wondered if it might be something that you had to face or deal with and get your thoughts. Um, I, I think it's the rare occasion where we end up dealing with somebody like that uh, in, a, in a negotiation sense. Um, but uh, these active shooter situations, there are instances where we might try to call that person. Uh, we had an instance here in Lubbock where a uh, college student shot and killed uh, a uh, university police officer. We actually ended up talking to him on the phone for just a couple minutes while everyone was trying to chase him and find him. And just that, you know, uh, delay or uh, distract uh, tactic, you know, could have some tactical advantage in, in the active shooter situation. Is that sometimes your job to stall them until SWAT can take them out? Uh, it's the rare occasion, but yeah, of course there's that possibility. I guess that guy you were speaking about earlier who was stalking a female would be an example. Yeah, that's right. There's a, uh, a famous uh, FBI intervention uh, in Alabama where an older uh, gentleman took an autistic boy hostage in a bunker underground. And uh, I think it lasted three or more days. And those three days uh, were devoted to how do we get into that place and get in there quickly and efficiently if we have to do that. Hmm, that's a weird one. I wonder if in a case like that, gas or something might have to be used. It's tough because in those kind of situations, you have no guarantee of our intervention being uh, effective quickly enough before that bad guy can do something bad. And how do you train for all of this? I know that actor active shooter simulations are becoming more popular. Do you actually run hostage simulations? Yes, we do. We have uh, scenario-based training. We'll have training once a month with the once a month, uh, two times a year with the tactical guys with a very elaborate scenario with all the moving parts. Um, there's actually a hostage negotiator competition here in Texas where teams get together and run through an eight-hour scenario. It, it's really good training. How in the world would you judge that for a competition? Yeah. Well, I actually serve as a judge for that competition. Okay. You got to tell me how this breaks down. Nope. This is weird. What are the rules? You have 15 teams running the same scenario at the same time. They have different role players, but they're all working from the same script. And we as judges are looking for uh, specifics. And the specifics start with what we started talking about here. How is that primary negotiator doing at listening, at empathy, at uh, paraphrasing, a lot of those very basic counseling skills that, you know, I learned when I got started. Now, paraphrasing, is that also called mirroring as referenced by Chris Voss and crew? Yes, uh, we could probably, you know, pick apart the def different definitions, but it's pretty close. Now, mirroring, from what I understand, is when you repeat, like, the last three words of everything they say. And I wanted to see if paraphrasing may be like that. For me, paraphrasing is a little more elaborate. Somebody makes a statement, you take it into your own words and you say it back to them. And it's a way to demonstrate I'm listening, I understand. And many times it helps a person go on to their next thought. Now, is this mirroring also good for a rhythm to where they say, I can't stand being here? You say, 
can't stand being here. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that elicits more of a response. And that's the goal. You just want to keep them talking. Yes, because usually if they're talking, that helps us understand what's going on, which in turn may help us um, find a different way to solve this problem. And is a lot of it to, I don't know if the term is right, get it off their spleen, or I guess you could say take the energy out of it? Yeah. Well, in counseling, to ventilate the emotion and to get the emotion out first is usually where we start. And then from there, now we can go cognitive and start looking at it differently. But you don't have time for cognitive. Uh, Sometimes, but yeah. Hmm. I was just thinking because for counseling, I mean, that could take a year and you have no time. I'm thinking of our seven hour standoffs, you know, a typical counseling hour is 50 minutes, but now I got seven hours with somebody. That, that's Oh, there you go. <laughs> Did you charge? <laughs> you break out the calculator. Uh, let me see. It's 50 minute sessions times seven hours. It's going to be. Yeah. And I should, you know, get some sort of, because it's eight hours straight, some comp time. How does that work? Are you pretty much always on call? Yeah, I'm always on call and I have, uh, you know, um, all my stuff in my car, ready to go. Um, it's a good thing I'm a geek for this. Hmm, that could be a weird thing. I can see where it's so fascinating you could really be into it. Right. But at the same time, you might feel a little guilty for enjoying it. Yes. Well, luckily, I've developed uh, psychopathy and, you know, I don't worry with guilt. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, Dr. James Fallon, who I was speaking to you about before, you know his story, right, about how he discovered he was a psychopath from his brain scans? I did not hear this. And that's what's so funny is when I was introducing him, I was complimenting him on his bravery for coming out about his particular condition. And he said, no, I have just enough narcissism to enjoy this. <laughs> nice. And he actually was a delightful interview. Okay. Hilarious. Oh, that's cool. Of course, I made sure I did it by video. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Do you ever get a chance to revisit with any of the people who have gone through a crisis? Uh, you know, in the, we'll go back to the cases of people wanting to jump off from an elevated position. Um, you know, a couple days later, if they're in the hospital, um, like the, the psych ward, inpatient psych ward, uh, I like to go and sit down and talk with them at that point and just process everything that, uh, we had gone through. Um, uh, we're not able to do that all the time. Many times we're, we only have a few minutes on scene after it's over to talk to somebody. But I, I do like to continue to talk to them uh, maybe a few days later. Have you gotten like some good tips out of that where they may tell you what was effective or it wasn't effective or what actually caused the breakthrough? I would think it'd be very useful to get that kind of direct feedback. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in one case where we got to talk to somebody, uh, you know, he wasn't really communicating with us. And so we did a lot of communication. And part of that was we didn't know what was going on with him. And his heels were hanging the over the edge of a 10 story building. When we met with him, he was like, man, you guys would not shut up and you wouldn't give me time to think. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And we had no idea he needed time to think. OK, so he's a molar. Yeah. And when we explained our position, he understood why we did what we did. And he got kind of uh, scared because he didn't realize his heels were hanging over the edge. Oh, man. That's fascinating. So you can actually apply that knowledge later. 
Exactly. Were there any other great discoveries like that? Uh, that conversation was pretty short, uh, but the other great discovery was he didn't realize, he didn't remember much of our conversation. He didn't realize uh, that his position was so precarious, and most of his uh, difficulty that day was domestically oriented and because he hadn't slept and because he hadn't eaten anything. And I wouldn't have thought of, oh, our man's dehydrated and malnourished, and that's why he's having so much difficulty. That kind of makes sense, though, doesn't it? It does in hindsight. I just never would have thought of that in the moment until after this one. So how do you guys apply that for the next scenario? Uh, You know, when we have the opportunity, we've got more questions in our assessment list than we did before. Just the simple stuff. Have, Have you had any water to drink? Because, you know... One of the first signs that you're kind of depressed is you're, I mean, kind of dehydrated as you get a little depressed. Can you just um, offer them water? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know why we would not give something simple just to start with. And it almost kind of falls into the um, rules of reciprocation. At the very least, you, you know that I am willing to give, uh, even though I'm asking something from you, like, hey, can you put your legs over the edge and face me? You know, I'll go first. I'll give something. Uh, and hopefully you'll know that uh, I care. You know, I'm trying to do the right thing here. I also didn't know if maybe the water could uh, be helpful because I'll have to take a whiz over time. <laughs> mm, exactly. <laughs> I just I just imagine that everything is tactical. That's right. But, you know, there, there's always the counter argument. We, we got the guy who's schizophrenic, high on meth and naked. You know, he doesn't care about whizzing in front of public anyway. True, but the water may flush it. Right. And so there is the advantage to it if they'll take it. <laughs> okay. I, I just find all this so fascinating. Oh, yeah. it It's real easy to start trying to game some of these things. What's the move and the counter move and all that kind of stuff? Uh, we have to, For me, we have to be careful about losing uh, the relationship in the moment with the person. Um, so anyway, that there, there's those two forces at work at the same time. Yeah, I'd worry about that too. You're objectifying the person, potentially. Right. That could even be more harmful, especially as I assume that some of these people already feel either objectified or at least not heard. Exactly. So we got to be very careful about uh, becoming too concerned with the, what I would call the tactical or practical situation and losing sight of the person. On that note, how do you compartmentalize? Mm. Uh, I don't know if I have a good answer to that because, uh, I'm an in the moment kind of guy. Uh, my background, uh, my school of thought is about relationship and empathy. Um, I guess the way I compartmentalize is thinking about, you know, what is my role with this person? What is my place in their life? Where does that start and where does that end? Okay, now I'm going to make a giant assumption, and obviously I don't know in fact if this is true, but you seem to have a background in religious studies. Oh, yeah. You teach at a Christian school. Right. Does that inform you and the way you are acting in a situation in terms of forgiveness and the like oh, yeah. to try to communicate. Yeah, that's right. Uh, forgiveness is a, is a piece of it many times. Um, <laughs> I, I have prayed for strangers in the moment that, you know, it, it's horrible. Uh, so that that's a piece of it for me as well. Uh, that those are the first things that come to mind. 
And of course, the other principle that you're not allowed to judge, or it's not up to you to judge. Very much so. And many of the people that we end up talking to have a long history of being beat up by religion or judgment or rejection or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, (laughs) that's, that's not my thing. So you probably don't advertise it when you're out there. Oh, that I'm a Christian or right. have that background? No. Uh, but when it comes up, uh, I mean, it's the same thing for each of these situations. It starts with the person we're talking to. And if it's going to be beneficial to them, then, yeah, we'll go there. Um, uh, it, the, the opposite of that, you know, Waco and somebody who's a cult leader and has his own theology built up, you know, there's, there's really not a lot of value about talking all that with them because they've already made their conclusion. Have you run into some of that? Uh, no, not something that extreme. I've been around the edges of it. I've, I've talked to some survivors of it in counseling, but I some more in counseling, not in crisis. Yeah, not the crisis part, but you know, to be ready for it because, you know, happens in Waco could happen in Lubbock. Now, do you ever see people in counseling that you worry you'll see later in crisis? I usually have the other thing, which is I see people who are in crisis trying to get out of crisis. Um, I don't think I've had many situations where I'm like, Ooh, this is, this is going to go bad outside of the counseling office. Yeah. I kind of liken it to the, to now that they're in the hospital, usually things start to go the right way. Okay. So let's swing around to, I guess, what's a popular subject today. How do you treat a psychopath? (laughs) Well, uh, from what I understand of the research, the best cure for a psychopath is them turning 65 and kind of aging out of it. That over time, the societal forces kind of wear out, beat out the psychopathology and and they start to go, oh, maybe I should try something else. So they never really become empathetic, though, do they? Uh, from what I understand, uh, they start to, they start to get in the realm of empathy as they get, you know, 65 or older. Hmm, Maybe it's just seeing their own mortality. And maybe it is. I I like to think it's kind of the, uh, forces of nature working against them for so long. Finally, they, they they relent. (laughs) That actually makes me think of another quote. I don't know exactly who says it. Something like, if you want to stop all crime, lock up all males between the ages of 18 and 30. Exactly. They're they're the busy ones. Do you ever find that in counseling, too, that age becomes a factor, whether somebody can actually adapt and or move forward? Yeah, there's kind of two sides to that. Uh, If you can catch somebody early, then their prognosis is good. Uh, Then they kind of got to hit their rock bottom. And so if you catch them after that, then their prognosis is good. And then there's that middle ground of 18 to 35 where, ooh, man, that's going to be a rough run. So what do you do about that? I imagine you see some people who really don't care about getting any better. Yeah, exactly. I really have no place there. So what do you do then? Do you just document that, hey, I made it to the appointment. I gave out the information. Don't know what else you want from me. I mean, I I can give them the best that I have. And then there's a point at which, for me, it's unethical for me to continue on with them because they're not buying what I'm selling. Okay, so you just fire the client then. Right. Yeah. Or try and refer them to somebody who might give them something that I can't. Awesome. Now, you wrote a book. And I don't want to end the show without learning about your book. Can you tell us about it? Some of these stories, you, you just you can't believe they happened. And so I wrote them down just kind of as my own therapy. 
And then over time, I kind of had this catalog of stories. I'm like, you know what? People need to know about this stuff. They don't have any idea what goes on at three in the morning, behind the yellow tape, all that kind of stuff. I want people to understand this a little better. And then it, after that, it kind of hit me. You know, people can learn from my bad days, our difficult ones, when the psychopath, you know, tried to kill everybody. Um, and so that kind of pushed me over the edge and I started writing them down formally, put a book together and just kind of self-published it. And off we go. Now it is available on Amazon, so I can put it in the show notes, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, I have a, my own website. If somebody wants a signed copy, they can come to the website or they can go through Amazon. And the book is Fight or Flight, Negotiating Crisis on the Front Line. Yes, sir. Thank you. And your website is DrAndyYoung.com? Yes, sir. That's fantastic. But I hope you have some uplifting stories in there, too. They're not all dark. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> but there are some uplifting uh, stories in there. And, you know, as a God guy, I like stories about redemption as well. So, yeah, it's not all horrible. And I also have a, a sense of humor that seems to help people get through it as well. Excellent. Now, what would you recommend that people do if, let's say, they're crazy enough to want to actually get into negotiation? Oh, wow. Um, if you're crazy enough to get into negotiation, I think the first step is to do your homework and start reading those stories like um, uh, Gary Nesner's book, What Happened at Waco?, uh, Chris Foss's book, How Do We Do This Kind of Work? I, I'd encourage you to do some reading and, and do some homework. And that might give you um, some understanding about how to get into it. Uh, for me, it started with uh, my local uh, law enforcement agency. And, you know, off we go from there. Would you recommend that people maybe work um, some suicide hotlines or crisis hotlines? Yes. And we actually asked some of our negotiators in order to keep their skills up to uh to volunteer for those wonderful now this has been a real treat oh, i'm glad you think so i've enjoyed it as well a lot of talk about psychopaths and psychopathy <laughs> but seriously some really good subjects and content great well thank you very much for having me and thank you for coming on my pleasure sir thanks for listening and if you like what you heard please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing The Diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The Diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe, I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty, just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. 
Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. Hey podcast fans, I'm Rachel, host of We're All Mad Here, a new podcast about the history of mental health. Do you love history? Do you love creepy stories of abandoned hospitals? How about questionable medical procedures? We're covering it all. Not only will we sneak around in old asylums, we'll talk about the patients that stayed there and what their lives were like. We're covering disorders, cures, and living life with mental illness. So come join us on We're All Mad here at allmadpod.com because the history of mental illness is insane.